Okay, so Esther, recap, rewind, let's start again. Esther was written um, at a time of winter for God's people, set in Persia in modern day Iran. King Xerxes is in power. He's this godlike figure who is in his palace in Susa. As I was mentioning, Mordecai and Esther are the Jews, are the central characters in the book of Esther. And in the first three chapters at the start of the book, they hide their identity as Jews. Esther becomes Queen Esther. Mordecai demonstrates incredible courage by not bowing down to the evil Haman. Esther then goes courageously into the king's presence. Esther chapter 4, for such a time as this. And all the time in the book of Esther, God is at work. God is at work in the details. Remember, Esther is one of two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned by name. But God is at work all the way through the book, orchestrating events and at work in the details. Two weeks ago, fortnight ago, we looked at how the timing of God is perfect. Because God perfectly timed it for Xerxes not to sleep one night, to open the scrolls and to read about Mordecai and what he had done there, stopping a pop to assassinate Xerxes, and how that meant that Mordecai was then honored when Haman wanted to kill him. God is at work in the details. Okay, we're going to pick it up in Esther chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to it, but it will also come up on the screen. So this is Esther chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 and 2. And just to say, this is a feast, feast number 2. There's lots of feasts uh, in the book of Esther. This is feast number 2. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. So just pause it before we read on. There's this feast, there is food, there is wine aplenty. Haman is beginning to forget what has just happened and the fact that, that rather than Mordecai being killed, Mordecai was honoured and, well, Haman was made to look a fool. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther a question that she'd been asked before. was, what did she desire? In the past, Esther had deferred that question, but now the time was right. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now look at what Esther has done here. Look at those verses, 3 and 4. It is filled with I, my life, my people. My people will be destroyed. What is Esther doing here? Esther, the Persian queen, is finally saying, I am Esther the Jew. 
I am identifying myself as a Jew. She is linking her faith to the faith of her people. And I bet after she said that, there would have been silence in the room. Tumbleweed, okay, would have come along in the palace. Absolute silence. I'm sure King Erxes' head was spinning. Was someone trying to plot to kill the Jews? My queen is a Jew. That means someone is trying to kill my queen. Let's read on, verse 5. King Erxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy. This vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. Okay? But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So, so, so Haman has been outed. After all this time, after all this scheming, finally Haman has been outed. It's Haman. Haman is the evil scum. This conniving, cunning one who is trying to kill the Jews. Erxes is so annoyed. He's so upset. He can't believe that he's been fooled by Haman. He, he's so angry at himself and at Haman. He storms out into the garden. Now look what happens next. I mean, you can't make this up. Because Haman thinks, I need to act quickly. He's, he's, he knows his clock is ticking. He knows... That, that his moment, his time is up, unless he does something drastic. What does he do next in verse 8? Just look what he does. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So the king goes out because he's angry and he's upset. And while he does that, Haman is on the floor kind of at, at Queen Esther. On the floor, kind of like trying to touch her dress, trying to bow down before her. I mean, you can't make this up. In walks King Erxes and says, will Haman even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? It's like incredible what is happening here. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. They put like a, a cloak or kind of a bag over his head. I mean, the irony here is incredible. Because Haman, his final death kind of in the coffin, his final moment that kind of seals his fate, is Haman falling down before a Jew. That's what, that's what Haman was, was trying to get the Jews to do. And yet Haman's fate is finally sealed by him on his knees before a Jew. It's, it's, it's absolutely ironic in one way. But look what happens next. Even more ironic. I mean... Alanis Morissette should sing about this next couple of verses. Then Harbonah, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, There's a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits that stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So the very gallows, the 70-foot gallows that Haman had set up for Mordecai were used for Haman to kill him for his evil plans. I mean, you couldn't make it up. It's perfect. 
Because our God is a just God. We need to hear that from what we're looking at today. Our God is a just God. Nothing and no one escapes him. The wicked will not win. I want to give you another example from scripture, from the book of Daniel. I want to give you another example from a man called Belshazzar, who learned this exact same truth firsthand. Now, Belshazzar became king of Babylon in 539 BC. That's 53 years before King Xerxes. And in a fateful feast that Belshazzar put on, he invited his friends, courtiers, and a thousand others to join this celebration. There was music, there was wine, there was feastings in this huge banquet hall. I wonder if you noticed that, that, that all these things happen at a feast. Always things happen at a banquet. Um, so Daniel chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Belshazzar set out this feast. He's got all his friends and courtiers there. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Pause for a moment. King Nebuchadnezzar's armies had ransacked the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, 50 years earlier, and they'd taken everything of value. They'd taken the menorah, they'd taken the, the table where the holy breads were put, they'd taken the goblets, the bowls, Everything in the temple, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken, but he then put it in storage. He like, he like ransacked the temple and then hid it away. Until this moment in Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar throws a party and commands that the temple implements be taken out of storage and be used as part of this feast. You say, why? Why did he do that? Was he just showing off? No, why was Belshazzar doing that? He was mocking and he was blaspheming the God of Israel. He was using the holy utensils of the temple in a drunken pagan celebration. And this didn't go unnoticed by God. Let's look what happened next. Verse 5 to 6. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. A hand, I can't do this because I just can't. A hand, detached from his arm, started writing on the walls. I mean, weird. Totally must have freaked everyone out. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. I mean, this is, this is great stuff in, in the Bible. You know, this is, this is as good as anything on, on Hollywood or, or anything at all. This is, this is amazing. They carved the message into the wall. The king is weak at the knees and collapses. The queen comes to the rescue and says, let's call for Daniel. Read verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. 
Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was summoned, and Daniel was older at this time. He was of old age. He probably had silver hair, bit of a, a kind of a back kind of crouch on his bent because he was now of, of, of 70, 80 years old, around that age. But his mind and his faith was as keen as ever. And Belshadar offers Daniel money. He offers him robes. He offers him power. But Daniel refuses. And this is what Daniel says, verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this about the goblets, about the temple, about who God was. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Next one. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written on the wall. Many, many tekel parson. Here is what these words mean, Daniel says. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But then listen, that very night, Belshadar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. He was killed. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. At the precise moment that Daniel was explaining this prophecy, the armies of the Medes and the Persians was creeping through the underground aqueducts, preparing to take the city. They took the city quickly, they took the city uh, mightily and powerfully, and the nation of Babylon collapsed, and Belshazzar was killed. Our God is a just God. Romans 11 verse 22 says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. We must not dismiss the justice of God. You see, God is gracious to those who trust him, but God is also serious about justice to those who dismiss him. And I want to be really practical here, just, just to help you. So three very practical things off the back of our God is a just God. 
Firstly, a word of caution. A word of caution to all of us. God doesn't turn a blind eye to acts of rebellion and evil. Romans 2 and verse 6 says that God will judge everyone according to what he has done. We're to watch our lives and our deeds carefully. There's a word of caution, and then there's a word of comfort. You see, Haman's worm their way into our lives from time to time. There are many Hamans in this world at this present time. And we wonder, we think, does God really care about my suffering? Does God really know what Haman is doing? Does God really know that the wicked seem to be getting away with everything? Jeremiah 12 verse 1, why does the way of the wicked seem to prosper? Do evildoers just get away with it? Where is the justice in the world? Well, the Bible tells us, Acts 17 verse 31, that God has set a day when he will judge the world. And for each of us, maybe the bully who belittles you at work, God knows. Maybe the person who took advantage of you at some point in your childhood or throughout your life, God knows. The, the innocent who are trafficked, the innocent who are put into labor camps, God knows. Psalm 7 and verse 11, God is a just God, a just judge who is angry with the wicked every day. I want you to take comfort in the fact that God is a just God. And then finally on this, a word of challenge. Because so often we cry out, God, would you do something about the injustice in our world? And often God replies, I did. I created you. I created each one of you. You see, God calls us as Christians, to be people of justice, to care for the elderly, to serve the poor, to look out for the refugees and offer them hospitality, to support those who are downtrodden, to fight for justice for those who have no voice, to become a part of the solution. So basically join hands with God. You see, there is a day that is coming when God will balance the scales of justice. I wonder if you've ever thought in heaven, in the next life, there will be no need for rescue missions or work for the homeless or work for the poor. There'll be no need for that. But until then, until then, we as believers, we as Christians are to choose to silence the Hamans with love and kindness. To speak up for justice. Because our God is a just God. Now that's the kind of the, the first half of today's message. But we're going to press on. We're going to press on into Esther chapter 8. And, and, and the second thing, if you want to remember two things from today. I want you to remember our God is a just God. But I also want you to remember that our God is a God of great reversals. Great turn-ups, great turning of the tables. 
And no condition that you are facing, no difficulty that you are facing is too difficult or too dark for God. We're going to jump to Esther 9 verse 1, and then we're going to draw back to Esther 8. But look at Esther 9 and verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. The edict of the king, remember, was to kill the Jews. This is what Haman had set into motion 11 months earlier. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But listen, I just love this. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. I love the fact in different versions, Esther 9 verse 1 reads like this. In some versions it says, but now the exact opposite happened. But now the reverse occurred. But now their plan was overturned. I want you to hear that the God of the Bible is the God of great reversals. The God of the Bible is the God of great plot twists. He writes the best plot twists. He writes the best narratives and the best scripts. So let's go back a moment to Esther chapter 8 and unpick this and see this wonderful reversal. So Esther chapter 8, verse 1 to 2. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Remember, Haman's just been killed. He's just been impaled and hung on his 70-foot kind of gallows that he built for Mordecai. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. In other words, Mordecai has just become the prime minister of Persia. He's become, after the king and queen, the next most powerful person in all of the empire. Read on, verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Now we'll read on, but just to say, this was the law that Haman had got King Xerxes to sign to kill the Jews. Now the thing about the law of the Medes and Persians, or the Persian law, was that it couldn't be changed. It couldn't be changed. Once the king had signed it with his signet ring, once the king had okayed it, it couldn't be changed. You know, we can go into parliament and say, right, we're going to change that law, we're going to add, we're going to detract, we're going to mess around with that law. Once the king had ordered the edict, it could not be changed. Maybe you're facing a situation where you think this is impossible. This situation, it cannot be changed. It's inconceivable, the wall that I am facing, the impossibility that I am facing. Let's read on. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Amathadai, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. 
For how can I bear to see disaster fall upon my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on a pole. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So what's the answer here? The king is writing another law. It's a workaround to write another law, a law that usurps the one that had originally been written. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers, who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. So now the Jews have been written by law to have the ability to defend themselves, to fight against their oppressor, to fight back. They could do that. If anyone came on their turf, if anyone came to put into practice the, the order of Haman, they had the king's authority to fight back. Anyone touched their daughters, anyone touched their wives, anyone touched their homes, they could fight back. Next couple of verses, last couple of verses of chapter 8. Love this, verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Listen to this. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness amongst the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. There was joy. There was celebration. There was gladness amongst the Jews. Haman's reign of terror was over. Mordecai was the prime minister, and the Jews knew that they could defend themselves, their homes, and their property. You see, our God is a God of great reversals. That's our God. So uh, just because we forget, we forget in the story over a few weeks, we forget. Let me just rewind. Because in Esther chapter 4 and verse 3, it's dark. It is difficult. They are mourning. They are weeping. They are in sackcloth and ashes. That's Esther 4 verse 3. Haman is in charge. Xerxes is oblivious to Haman's plans. The Jews are going to be killed in 11 months' time. 
There is hatred everywhere, racism, xenophobia, everything. It looks as bad as it possibly could. Esther 8 and verse 16, joy, celebration, Mordecai, Prime Minister, Haman, dead, gone, annihilated, joy, abounded. I wonder, do you find yourself in chapter 4 of Esther? Do you find yourself mourning? Do you find yourself weeping? Do you find yourself lamenting? Has illness taken its toll? Do you, do you live under the shadow of a, a Haman? Are you married to a spouse who is not the same spouse that you were married to 10 years ago? Do you not know where to turn? Are you just tired and tired and fed up? Let me say to you, don't give up. Please don't give up. Because the Bible is a book of great reversals. It's a book of great reversals. Let me just remind you of a few. Abraham and Sarah were old and barren. Then one day, Sarah became pregnant. Joseph went to sleep in a prison for the umpteenth night. But after one night's sleep in prison, after being there for many years, he then finds himself... Prime Minister of Egypt, having interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and the second most powerful man in Egypt. Joshua marched round the city of Jericho six times and he was still standing. Nothing had happened. But on the seventh time, the walls came tumbling down. Goliath mocked the Israelites for 40 days. 40 days of fear, 40 days of being mocked, 40 days of defeat, staring them in the face. But then David loaded a sling, let it fly, and everything changed. 450 prophets of Baal mocked Jehovah. Then Elijah prayed, and fire came down from heaven. You see, in God's hands, no script is predictable. No script is predictable. Whatever you might think the script of your life might be, in God's hands, no script is predictable. Let me tell you about the most famous one and wonderful one of all. Who saw the savior of the world sleeping in a feeding trough in Bethlehem? You see, the story of the gospel, the story of Easter, is the greatest of all reversals. A cemetery outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was dead. He was a dead corpse. There was no pulse. He was wrapped up like a mummy for three days. His, his enemies were celebrating the death of the Messiah. His followers and his friends were hiding because their world was shattered. They left everything to follow Jesus but it looked like it meant nothing. It seemed like heaven's champion was a hoax. It seemed like the devil was victorious, or so it seemed. Because just when all seemed to be lost, a heart began 
to be. Eyelids popped open. Pierced hands lifted up. And Jesus stood up. You see, the tables were turned and the exact opposite happened of what anyone expected. Just one verse from the Easter story. Matthew 28, verse 6. Just this is wonderful. Matthew 28, sorry, verse 6. Jesus is not here, for he has risen. As he said, he is risen. He's not here. He has risen. The exact opposite has taken place to what was expected. So let me say, who's to say that you don't have a reversal coming up in your future? Don't let the middle of the story confuse you. Don't let it confuse you or cause you to give up. Don't be thrown off by seeing the wicked have success. Our God is a God of great reversals. Many of us will be in situations where you say, well, Mark, that's wonderful. That's great. But I'm in need. I'm struggling. I'm tired. There's Haman's in my life. My word to you today is your story is not finished. It's not finished. The script has still to be played out. Your story is not finished. You could be a day away from the great reversal. I always think of Joseph in prison. There he was in prison for something he hadn't done for a number of years. And then one day the key went in the lock. But Jaina opens the door and says, Pharaoh wants to come and see you. He goes to Pharaoh. He interprets the dream and becomes prime minister of Egypt. When Joseph woke up that day in jail, he didn't know that that was the day. He didn't know. You won't know that today could be the day or tomorrow could be the day. You could be a day away from that reversal. The key, here's the key. Here's the absolute golden nugget key that I want you to take. Stay in the game. Stay in the game. Because even Mordecai and Esther, they messed up. We, we read the first three chapters. They weren't great. They were hiding. They were messing up. They were lying. They were doing things that you would look at and go. But they were staying in the game. They stayed in the game. You, each one of us, you, me, all of us. I think the path to the great reversal is staying in the game. It's continuing. It's getting knocked down but getting back up again. It's messing up but repenting and asking for God's forgiveness and say, I will stay in the game. I will stay in the game. And as I stay in the game, the Lord will outwork the script of his great reversal. Our God is a just God. And our God is the God of great reversals. I mean, what wonderful, wonderful truth from the book of Esther. How incredibly relevant to our times. Our God is a God of justice. Our God is the God of the great reversal. Jonathan, could you come up? We're going to respond in a moment to this message. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to respond in prayer.
What I would love to do is this. I would love to pray first and foremost for anyone here who just senses they need a reversal. They need to see God come through. They need to see a shift, a change in circumstance. They need to see a Haman be dethroned and taken out of the game. They need to see something shift and something change. If that's you, I want to pray for you. What we're going to do is this. I'm going to pray a prayer for you, if that's particularly you. Then we're going to sing a song, which basically is an Easter song. It declares the wonder of the empty tomb, the great reversal of the gospel. We're going to declare that and sing that together. But before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer. If you are here this morning, I'm going to ask something. If you're watching online too, if you need and say, Lord, I need a reversal here. I need something to shift. I need something to change. If that's you, I'm going to ask where you are, if you'd like to just stand. Just as a sign of, Lord, would you do this in my life? Lord, would you bring about that reversal? Would you bring about that shift? Would you bring about that change? I want to pray for you specifically. In one sense, it can apply to all of us, but I think specifically there are people in this room, people watching online, where you just need a touch from God. You need the ability to stay in the game long enough to see that reversal take place. If you've stood, I'm going to pray for you. I want to pray that this would be a moment where that reversal kicks in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these dear ones who've responded. Thank you that you know their situation. You know their lives. You know the struggles that we face. You know the Hamans that we face. You know the difficulties that we face. You know the circumstances that are battling against us. I want to pray for two things, Lord, for my dear brothers and sisters. I want to pray first and foremost that you would give them courage and you would help them to stay in the game. I pray that you would help them to keep walking into tomorrow and to keep walking into the next day. I pray, Father, that you would give them persevering hearts, Lord, to get up again, to walk again, to not give up and not be downtrodden. Father God, I pray an encouragement, Holy Spirit encouragement to keep going, to keep going, to not give up, to not give up. Like Mordecai and Esther at the beginning of the book, they didn't give up. They kept going. They kept in the race. They kept in the story. And then secondly, I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for a reversal, a mighty, powerful reversal that only God can do. Lord, I want to pray for a reversal of relationships that suddenly are opened up where there was a barrage, where there was a blockage, where there was a problem. Suddenly a reversal comes and supernaturally that is spun round. Lord, I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for a reversal where people cannot get a job, where people cannot see a breakthrough in where, God, you've called them to serve and to work. Father, I want to pray again for a breakthrough in Jesus' name. I want to pray for a reversal in Jesus' name. I want to pray, too, for those of us who feel stuck in our faith, 
We feel like we're going through the motions. We feel like it's just same old, same old. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for a, a breakthrough, for a reversal. Lord, you to come in by your sovereign plan and shift and change and bring freedom and upturn the tables and bring about a wonderful, wonderful turn.